My guest is Tim Bale. Tim Bale is Professor of Politics at Queen Mary University of London. His latest book, The Conservative Party After Brexit, Turmoil and Transformation, has just been published. Welcome to the podcast, Tim. Thanks very much, Paul. Right, just to give a steer to our listeners, this book covers the period from just after the result of the Brexit referendum, June 2016, and finishes roughly when Rishi Sunak becomes Prime Minister in the autumn of, of last year. So it's a mere six years, but you managed to nonetheless write a tome of almost 400 pages when you embarked on this exercise. Did you ever imagine that covering a period of only six years or so would actually end up in a book covering almost 400 pages? No, to be honest, I mean, I didn't really uh, realise quite how many kind of thrills and spills uh, and what a roller coaster ride this period would be. I knew it was going to be difficult for the Conservative Party because I think Brexit was always going to be, let's put it this way, a challenge uh, for them. Uh, but I really hadn't realised quite how much it would destabilise the party, particularly with regard, obviously, to the leadership. And of course, a lot of the book is about the various leadership challenges and, and contests that we've seen. But then again, we also had COVID, which presented uh, possibly an even bigger challenge uh, for the government. Right. So there's still this quite well-established idea, and I did politics many centuries ago, uh, of the Conservative Party, the British Conservative Party, as quote-unquote the, the natural party of government. And it's obviously, as you say in the book, it's the most successful political party ever anywhere in the world. Uh, but at, at the end of this exercise, do, do they still deserve that particular mantle? Well, I mean, you have to look at what happened, for example, in 2019, when, uh, as you will remember, the Conservatives lost really badly in the European Parliament elections that summer. They did terribly in the local elections. And yet a few months later, there they go with Boris Johnson winning an 80 seat majority. So I wouldn't altogether uh, dismiss the idea that they've still got it in them to to win or at least limit some of the damage. But I, I do think that actually Brexit probably has pulled apart the fabric of the Conservative Party in such a way as to make it very difficult for them to, to claim that mantle, if you like, uh, going forward. You, you quote Enoch Powell, the, the well-known uh, political figure of the 1960s in the UK, of, of, the, of the Conservative Party always knowing where, uh, ability to know where the, where the votes are. Do you think they still have that knack, though, nonetheless, they know where the votes are? Well, I think they know where some of the votes are, and I think they know how they're um, going to try to get them. And that is with this uh, more populist turn, if you like, and particularly with regard to immigration and stopping the small boats. I think they realise that there are still a lot of culturally conservative voters out there, particularly in you know what's become known as the Red Wall, so the North and the Midlands, um, seats that used to be Labour. Uh, and I think they feel that they can be appealed to on those grounds. And I think looking at their more traditional voters in the, the south of England, slightly more affluent, if you like, I think they believe that as long as they can get the economy back on an even keel, rescue it, as it were, from the situation into which Liz Truss plunged it, uh, and perhaps provide a few tax cuts before the election, don't spend too much money, then they have some chance of, of pulling them into that electoral coalition that Boris Johnson established back in, in 2019. So I think they have some hope of doing that. But I think after the very recent local elections, perhaps they're a little bit more worried that that's not going to be a trick that they can pull off this time. Right. You mentioned immigration, the small boats. I think a lot of people, certainly outside the UK, don't appreciate, and maybe me as an expat, I'm part of that group these days, that the extent to which uh, the Conservative Party feels uh, vulnerable and threatened by its right wing flank. You know, we have this image or idea still of the UK being a two or two and a half party system. 
Conservatives, Labour and Liberal Democrats, obviously there are sort of nationalist parties as well. And we tend to sometimes maybe under, underestimate the or even ignore the importance of the, the right flank, the what's used to be called UKIP and the, the, the Brexit party now, currently the Reform Party. How much of a threat in electoral terms to the Tory party, because the party is, is the, I think it's now called the Reform Party, well, I mean, I don't think really you can understand the politics of the Conservative Party and indeed the politics of the UK um, since 2010 without um, taking that threat seriously. I think the Conservative Party began to get very worried about UKIP, uh, and particularly the way that Nigel Farage was able to fuse the issues of immigration and the European Union uh, together. Uh, I think... Conservative MPs weren't so much worried that they would lose their seats directly to UKIP or the Brexit Party or indeed, you know, perhaps in the future reform UK. But what they do worry about is, uh, you know, those parties doing sufficiently well to actually drain votes away from the Conservative Party and allow Labour candidates or Liberal Democrats um, to come through. Now, in some ways, you know, that is a threat that many continental European centre-right parties face. Um, but it is, in some senses, much worse for the Conservative Party but because of the electoral system, which means that although uh, a party like Reform UK or indeed the Brexit Party or, or, or UKIP can get large numbers of votes, and we have to remember that UKIP got four million votes at, at one stage, they can't actually convert those votes into seats, uh, right. which means that... Uh, in the event, for example, of a hung parliament, and right. that's something that you know we've, we've seen in the UK and something that could occur again, the Conservative Party doesn't really have uh, a coalition partner or at least a party on the right that would allow a minority Conservative government to uh, rule. So in some ways, the challenge that's facing centre-right parties, Christian Democratic parties, market liberal parties, Conservative parties in Europe is all the more acute for cons the Conservative Party in the UK. So uh, that's a, a long way of, of answering your question, which is Reform UK probably isn't quite the threat that the Brexit Party was or uh, UKIP was. But I think that is primarily to do with the fact that Nigel Farage isn't leading it. I think were Nigel Farage to come back into frontline politics and lead Reform UK, then he may well gain some traction. Uh, and I think the Conservatives would be particularly worried if he were to stand candidates in um, Conservative held seats. That's something he didn't do in 2019 with the Brexit Party, and that probably actually saved the Labour Party around 20 seats. But does this vulnerability or this perceived vulnerability still nonetheless inform some of the uh, the, the positioning of the party? Uh, that famous phrase of Ken Clark, another distinguished Tory politician of years ago, if the trouble with throwing buns to crocodiles is uh, what you do when you run out of buns, right? So how many... How many more concessions in 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 policy terms, ideological terms, if you like, can can the party give to the to, to the right wing out there before they run out of ideas? Well, I think I think they're two great questions. The the to the first one, yes, I think that actually the the fear of reform UK is still there. Uh, it's in, in some ways the kind of nightmare scenario for conservatives that you know reform UK start to build some popularity and 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 you know that may see Nigel Farage come back in. So I think they are still worried about that. And I do think that to some extent does dictate some of the populist policies that uh, they uh, stress, and, and particularly actually also some of the rhetoric around those policies, particularly obviously with regard to immigration and the way that Suella Braverman talks about asylum seekers, I think is, you know, straight out of that kind of populist radical right playbook. Uh, I mean, I think on the second question, that is a really good one, because there's only cer a certain number of 
policies that the, the Conservatives can put forward before they actually become, in some senses, a populist radical right party and begin to alienate a lot of mainstream centre-right voters uh, for whom that stuff is just beyond the pale. And I think Rwanda, you know, is pretty radical, uh, this idea that, you know, anyone coming into the UK seeking asylum is de facto and indeed de jure now illegal uh, and therefore will be deported to Rwanda to have their case processed. And not only will their case be processed there, but even if they are granted asylum, they will stay in Rwanda rather than coming to the UK. Uh, it's difficult to see what else really apart from, you know, creating wave machines in the channel or, you know, um, you know, hearing the roar of cannons, to quote a, an Italian far-right politician, uh, the Conservatives could do. Likewise, I think on some of the, you know, other kind of anti-woke policies that they put forward, some of the stuff on trans issues, some of the stuff on statues, um, it's difficult to see, you know, what, what else they can do, how much road there is left to run on those kinds of policies, again, before they begin to alienate you know, most, if you like, right-thinking people in this country. Yeah. I still want to press you a bit, though, on this, Tim, because the, the subtitle of your book is Turmoil and Transformation. Now, the turmoil is it's pretty self-evident, unless you live in a cave somewhere, uh, <laughs> the British political scene in the past six years or so. Uh, but this aspect of transformation, what did you mean when you, when you put the word transformation in the subtitle? Well, this is this question what we've already been talking about, really, uh, as to whether the Conservative Party in the UK is still a mainstream centre-right right. party right. or okay. whether it has, in fact, become what I talk about as an ersatz populist radical right party. Okay. And I think if you compare the Conservative Party to you know, some of its uh, Christian Democrat or Conservative or indeed you know, market liberal sister parties, if you like, on the continent, uh, its rhetoric, and particularly around immigration, but also just generally around the establishment, um, you know, the, the kind of the wokerati, the chattering classes, et cetera, et cetera, is far more radical than you would expect from those politicians and actually has far more resonances with some of the stuff that we've got used in Europe to hearing from populist radical right politicians. So the, there's a question really at the end of the book as to whether this transformation is complete, whether this transformation is permanent, because it could be that this is just another iteration, if you like, in the long story of conservative adaptation to, to the zeitgeist and shaping of the zeitgeist. And it may be that in a few years time, we see the Conservative Party return, if you like, to, to the, the mainstream centre-right. But I, I do wonder whether it could be a case of, if you like, the genie coming out of the bottle and, and right. not being able to, to get it back in again. What about this pretty well uh, entrenched notion that uh, some would say reality that the Conservative Party is, a, is an old party in a sense, it's an aging party in the sense that its core voter are older people who at some point will uh, will leave this this world. Um, they tend to turn out in larger numbers than younger members of the electorate, certainly. But is that to what extent is that an issue that the Conservative Party has to deal with, and are they and are they mindful enough of that? Well, I mean, and this is where we come back to the running out of road, because obviously right. some of the policies that they put forward do appeal to those kinds of people. But as you say, there, there's a kind of diminishing return that sets in there as these people shuffle off this mortal coil uh, <laughs> and leave the electorate, as you rather put <laughs> it. Um, I, I mean, I think Conservative MPs are aware that they have a long term problem there because the country is becoming more socially liberal. The country is becoming more multi-ethnic and more multicultural. And that in some senses, if they pitch their appeal to uh, a dwindling band of older, less educated uh, white voters, 
that actually, you know, this is going to cause them some problems in the long term. On the other hand, of course, uh, they will look to the United States where, you know, people have long been saying that somehow demographics will, you know, create a kind of permanent um, democratic majority. That hasn't happened. That, that never quite ever seems to happen. And of course, MPs uh, have fairly short time horizon. So I guess many of them feel, well, I know many of them feel that if it gets them, you know, over the line at the next election and the next election after that, then they'll worry about the future <laughs> uh, yeah. when it when it comes. Uh, I, I do think the more, if you like, thinking conservatives are, are quite concerned uh, about the you know, the detrimental effects of, of right. this strategy, um, particularly because many uh, younger voters who perhaps would normally or would traditionally have, have been conservative, you know, they're earning quite well, they're living in the southeast of England, uh, are, are turned off by that kind of culture war um, politics, but also actually also turned off by the fact that public services, you know, don't work very well here, uh, by the fact that the economy seems to have stalled, and of course, um, by uh, the, the fact that it's increasingly difficult to get on a housing ladder in, in a country where, you know, owning property is the dream of most people. Right. At the end, of, towards the end, I'm going to press you a bit of your prognostics about um, the, the next general election, which is going to take place in the next 18 months or so, apparently. Um, but before we do that, Tim, um, I want to talk also about the, the media and the and this rather cosy relationship between the media and the Conservative Party, allegedly, some might say. Um, a, a phrase you use an awful lot in the book, it almost, almost flippantly, but also the kind of matter-of-fact way also, is the party in the media. Uh, which is a phrase, a phrase I never really come across before, but obviously you're very pleased with it because you use it so often in the book, but it actually makes you think. But it is, you know, and it, we, it's a phenomenon that we're all familiar with. We don't need Professor Bale to tell us about it, but the way you again and again come back to it, it doesn't bring it home to the extent to which it is extraordinary, this, let's call it, symbiotic relationship with, between the Conservative Party and, and British mainstream media, no? Yeah, I mean, that's a nice way of putting it. I mean, another way of putting it is that you can't really understand the Conservative Party without understanding that, in fact, the, 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 the Conservative supporting media is, if you like, an integral part of the Conservative Party. It's not separate from it uh, in the sense that uh, the uh, power and the influence of not so much proprietors, but, you know, editors, op-ed writers, leader writers, columnists, etc., uh, it is quite significant in the sense that it makes an impact on Conservative MPs and on Conservative Prime Ministers uh, and leaders. And it, it creates a kind of agenda, uh, an ongoing conversation uh, within the Conservative Party about you know, what it's doing, what it should do, uh, what it has done. Now, I, I guess that reached its kind of apotheosis, its apex with um, uh, Boris Johnson, who, of course, was himself a journalist who moved into parliamentary party and of course we've seen other journalists do this michael gover is yeah, another example yeah. you know where uh, you know quite famously now boris johnson describes the daily telegraph as his real boss to, to <laughs> right. dominic cummings um, i mean I, I think that's a little bit extreme but if you look for example at the the way that the conservative government handled covid you can see that there is an awful lot of pressure and to some extent bowing to that pressure on the part of uh, the, the the government to you know open up much earlier than perhaps some of its scientific advisors were uh, suggesting. Now uh, at one stage that went quite well actually, but another stage you can argue that went very very badly indeed, and and we opened up a little bit too early and uh, caused in fact more deaths than we'd seen in the first wave uh, of COVID as a result. 
Um, so I, I think the media is quite powerful, is a part of the Conservative Party. And, and in part, it's not just because it influences the, the leaders, um, but also because it, it pushes particular MPs to the fore. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's a relationship between uh, the groups that have become such an important part of sort of conservative factional politics, if you like, the, the European Research Group, as we know, of a Brexit, the Covery Recovery Group. Um, you know, they are, are, are very much um, pushed in, into the, the, the conversation uh, and their agenda is shared with uh, the, the party and the media. So I, I don't think we can, as I say, understand the Conservative Party without understanding the integral role that it plays. Is there a, at least a theoretical danger that we might nonetheless overstate the, this, in, this, this relationship in the sense that uh, mainstream media, you know, is not doing as well as, as in the past? Uh, its, uh, its readership tends to, or its viewership, certainly readership tends to be, again, older. Um, social media is much more part of the media and landscape these days. And younger people get their, their information, their views and whatever, what to think from social media rather than, you know, print, traditional print media and broadcast media. So um, is that, again, a bit like maybe the, the, the electoral base of the Conservative Party aging? Is, it, is, is this influence, maybe I'm trying to say in a very long-winded way, is this influence uh, have a certain uh, time limit attached to it? Well, that is a really good point, because rationally, um, conservative um, politicians, I think, should probably pay rather less attention to the messages that they're getting from that media, because, as you say, its circulation is dwindling and it hits uh, only a particular demographic. On the other hand, of course, conservative MPs will argue that that is their demographic. Uh, <laughs> that is uh, the, precisely the kind of people that they uh, they want to hit. Uh, but one could argue that, in fact, uh, it would be better and would have been better if conservative politicians had listened rather less, for example, to the, the Daily Mail and the Daily Telegraph and even, believe it or not, the Daily uh, Express and certainly say to GB News, which is the kind of latest addition yeah. uh, to the party in the media, because actually it is pushing uh, the agenda that, as we've already discussed, in the long term is probably a bit of a dead end for the Conservative Party. And, and, and brought out in your book, almost in passing, uh, is the extent to which there's this revolving door as well. I mean, we, again, something that we all kind of knew intuitively happens all the time, but, but, but when we put together in the, in the covers of a book, it, it's quite striking. It's not unique to be in the interest of fairness to the centre-right of politics in Britain, but it's, it's nonetheless quite striking, maybe and maybe more uh, important given that the, the party is in government as opposed to opposition. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, not only obviously at the level of um, parliamentarians, and we've already discussed Johnson and, and Gove in this um, when, when we're talking about this, but also in in with regard to staffers. So uh, yeah, you, you can see that you know many journalists will be going you know to become spokespeople for. Uh, conservative uh, ministers, uh, and then they will go back into journalism. Uh, and one of the, you know, of course, uh, results of that was Partygate itself, where you have a journalist like Allegra Stratton being hired uh, by the Conservative Party to, uh, you know, be the Prime Minister's spokesman, and then inadvertently giving away the fact that there had been parties in Downing Street. And then you find, of course, that some of the journalists who have then gone back into the media, having worked for the government, knew full well about Partygate, but never said anything at all, never reported it, didn't touch it. Uh, and in some ways, that's quite worrying for democracy, I, I think, not just for um, you know, the, the, the Conservative Party and the kind of hermetically sealed world in which it lives. But, you know, we can't really afford to have so many members of the fourth estate, essentially, uh, if you like, following some sort of policy of Ometa, 
um, about what's going on in government because they may get a job in it or, you know, they may, yeah. after they've had a job in government, come back into the media. Okay, we're coming immediately quickly to the, the end of this chat, Tim. So I want to press you a bit about and focus on the, the, the general election in Britain, which is due to take place sometime in the next 18 months or so. Uh, before I ask you to tell me exactly who's going to win, and I can put some money in <laughs> on a betting thing somewhere, uh, more seriously, um, on Brexit, we've hardly touched on Brexit, which is extraordinary for me. Is Brexit finally becoming a less uh, toxic, poisonous issue? And therefore, less, or therefore, by extension, less of a vote winner for the Tories. Well, I mean, I think some of the poison has gone out of Brexit, both within the party and in the UK. However, I think, you know, you can see from survey research that increasing numbers of people feel that it was a mistake. Um, they don't necessarily want to rejoin, but I think, you know, they would like a closer relationship with European, uh, the European Union, it, certainly if it were to help the economy. And it's, I guess, the, the confluence of Brexit and the economy that's caused Brexit so many problems in terms of its appeal to, to the public. Uh, I think if you look, interesting, at the local election results, and we've just had local elections here, you can see that the relationship between uh, people's vote in that 2016 referendum and their vote in this local election, uh, this set of local elections, has diminished. Uh, so that it, we did think there'd been this great realignment, there'd been a sorting, mm. if you like, of Brexit voters into the Conservative Party and, and leave, um, sorry, uh, Remain voters into the Labour Party and the Liberal Democrats. Uh, that was true, certainly in 2017 and 2019, but I do wonder, having seen you know, the research on the local elections and how people are voting there, whether that's beginning to unwind. And then, in fact, you know, this realignment, in fact, was simply uh, another episode, if you'd like, de-alignment. Uh, and what we will see is voters becoming, once again, much more volatile and, and not choosing uh, parties you know, as a result of their Brexit identity. So, uh, I mean, I, I'm reluctant to say it won't have any impact whatsoever on the next election, because I think that sorting to some extent is still around, but I don't think it will be as anything like as impactful as it was in 2017 and 2019. And he's only been in Downing Street for a few months, Rishi Sunak, but to what extent, and he's had quite a challenge, to put it mildly, to turn things around, but in your, in your view, to what extent has he, has he turned things around after the, especially the disastrous premiership, short-lived premiership of his trust? Well, I think for the Conservative Party, I mean, he's done them a big favour in the sense that I think the Windsor framework was important. Yeah. I mean, I think that Northern Ireland protocol issue was uh, you know, quite neuralgic for the Conservative Party. And I think, you know, having managed to put that to bed and uh, then got a vote in Parliament where only 22 members of the so-called ERG Spartans, um, you know, voted against it means that probably he's seen off, if you like, that that very poisonous debate within the parliamentary party. So I think he's, he's done them a favour there. I think most Conservative MPs now realise it's Rishi or bust. They don't think that Boris Johnson can possibly make a comeback, certainly after his appearance uh, in front of the committee uh, over Partygate. So I, I think the idea that the Conservative Party is sort of ungovernable now uh, was never true. And I think Rishi Sunak has, has put them back on the path to, to a degree of unity, which obviously you need at a general election. I think what he can't really um, do very much about is the fundamentals of the economy uh, and indeed the public services. There isn't really time now to turn around the NHS and it doesn't look as if we're going to get the kind of growth and indeed reduction in inflation uh, that means that people's real wages uh, are going to go up. So in as much as general elections are 
based on you know the fundamentals if you like rather than you know some kind of presidentialism or you know what this leader does or says i think you know he he's done as much as he can but i'm not sure that's enough so a final question then um, and bringing back in maybe the point you made early on about how the the reform party as it's called now uh takes a lot of votes but doesn't have any seats because of our electoral system um, your prognostic for the general election, Professor Bale, um, who's going to win and what are the options for each party? Um... Well, I mean, I, I think, you know, you would say having looked at these local election results and looking at opinion polls, and looking at some of the fundamentals, it's going to be quite difficult for the Conservative Party, I think, to um, you know, get a majority. I think, however, it, it may also be quite difficult for the Labour Party to, to gain a majority. You know, you have to remember how badly they crashed in 2019. It would be a miracle, really, if they were to be able to come back in just one term after that with a comfortable majority. That probably may mean a hung parliament, in which case Labour are in a much better position, partly because of what we were talking about earlier. They're um, more allies. Have, yeah, Labour yeah. will have far more coalition options or options for support from, from outside if they want to go as a minority um, government. So if, if I was going to make a prediction, and prediction is a mugged game, I would say <laughs> we will have a Labour government, but I'm not really sure whether it will be a majority or a minority or a coalition. But famous last words, because as we said, you can never write the Conservative Party off. You know, there's yeah. a reason it's been the most successful political party in the world. Uh, and I don't think all of those reasons have disappeared. Thank you. Well, we have to leave it there. Tim Bell, thank you very much for your time. Thanks a lot, Paul.